Well, let's get started. We are uh, beginning lesson six today on page 34 of your workbooks, the plan of salvation. And uh, we're only going to be able to get through the total depravity section. Uh, So this lesson and then lesson seven will go over what is referred to as TULIP or the five points of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So today we're going to hit that first point, which is total depravity. Uh, And so before we get started, Bob, can I ask you to open us in prayer? Lord, as we look at this important topic, we ask that you give us wisdom and insight. Um, Lord, as we evaluate total depravity, my thoughts immediately turn to myself and the recognition that I am a sinner, but by grace of God. So, Lord, uh, we are wicked and evil people continually, and we fall short of your glory. Lord, that's the essence of the need for the gospel. So help us as we understand, as we study it, as we discuss it, to understand more of who we are in relationship to an eternal and loving God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So when speaking on total depravity, uh, the first verse or or passage that that typically comes to mind is Ephesians 2 and verses 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath uh, before ordained that we should walk in them. So, Why is this typically what we think of when we think of total depravity? And it's because uh, it's saying that our works cannot attribute to our salvation. And so we see uh, that that is because of our corrupted nature, that sin nature that we received from Adam as our federal head. And so our Workbook gives this definition uh, for total depravity. Man's nature is sinful throughout. He is totally unable to save himself from the consequences of his own sin. And there we hear that Ephesians 2 uh, language that he's unable to save himself, that it's not of works. Um, And so first we're going to Uh, look at how sin defiles the man's total personality, how it corrupts the man totally. And so we'll begin with Romans 8, 7, and 8. If I could get someone to read that. Uh, And then go ahead and have someone ready for Mark 7, 21 through 23, and then John 3, 19. So Romans 8, 7, and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can, nor, nor indeed can, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, so the carnal mind is enmity against God. Uh, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, uh, and the flesh cannot please God. So what is it that Paul is saying that the fleshly mind cannot do? It cannot obey the law of God. Cannot obey the law of God, and it cannot please God. Um, and so if... If the flesh, if, if the fleshly carnal mind cannot do these things, then there has to be a corruption of it. 
that is keeping it from being able to do that, and that is the total depravity, uh, the sin nature that has uh, been passed on from our federal head, Adam. Enmity would be hostility or, or um, you know, against. And so we see that the carnal mind is against God or there's a hostility uh, between uh, our flesh and God. All right, Mark 7 and verses 21 to 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. All right, so from what aspect of man's being do the sins listed here proceed? They come from the heart of man. And so here we see that the heart, uh, which is symbolic of the inner man, the uh, spiritual man, it's not talking about your physical heart, it's talking about your spiritual heart, that that it is out of the heart these things come, and so there is a there is a wickedness, a a, a depravity, a corruption of that spiritual heart, and out of that uh, that which is uh, wicked or corruptible produces or corrupted produces things that are wicked and corrupted, um, and we see that here. Um, it also is similar uh, to what we see with what Christ says, that you will know a tree by the fruit that it bears, and that a rotten tree bears rotten fruit. And so the heart uh, prior to regeneration is rotten, and it produces rotten things. All right, John 3 and verse 19. All right, so what do we see here in this text is the relation of non-Christians to sin or darkness. I'm sorry, I was on chapter four. They love it. They love it. Here we see that the, the unconverted man, uh, the one who is not placing their trust in Christ, that they love their sin. Um, this should not be difficult for us to understand. Uh, you know, you look at the world around us and how much it revels in sin, how much sin is celebrated. There's a whole month in the month of June that is dedicated to celebrating sin uh, with Pride Month. Um, but it's not, it's not just the unconverted that love sin. Um, our own sinful hearts, even if we are in Christ, we still have a sinful heart. Uh, sin has still touched every part of our being. And so we in our own sinfulness, in, in the remaining sin within us, we still love our sin. And it is, it is that fight against the love of sin that we're called to do. Um, we see that with Paul, that the, the very thing that he wants to do, he doesn't do, but the very thing he hates is what he does. Um, and so it's that wrestle between the regenerate new man and the remaining indwelling sin. 
All right, so there we see uh, just in, in a few passages, and there are several elsewhere, we see that sin defiles or, or corrupts uh, man, man in his total personality, his whole being. Everything about him is corrupted. Uh, we saw it with the mind. We see it with the heart. We see it with the affections. Uh, everything about the man is corrupted or depraved um, in sin. Do we have any questions on that section or any, any comments on how sin has uh, essentially overtaken man in his natural state? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll hear in the sermon today, uh, Paul saying, it's not as though I have attained this perfection. Um, and so, you know, this, this idea that we're never there, but we're always striving for it. Um, and if, if we've not attained perfection yet, then that means that there's still stuff for us to repent of. There's still room for us to grow. Um, I do want to make a, a, a quick comment in regards to sin defiling the man's total personality. Um, there is this false notion that total depravity, uh, people will say that we who believe in total depravity uh, believe that man is... Uh, as wicked as he could be. Um, and that's not what total depravity is. You know, it's not saying that every person is as sinful as they could be. Um, and that's obvious to see. Otherwise, you know, there would be just mass genocide all over the place. Everyone would be killing each other constantly, nonstop. Um, there, there are degrees of depravity. There are degrees of wickedness in men. Uh, Hitler was more wicked than Bill Gates. Um, so it seems. <laughs> and so, so we have this notion that there... 
that there are people, uh, unbelievers, who can be more wicked than other people. Uh, but what we're saying is, while that is true, it's also true that there is not a part of the human body, soul, experience that has not been touched, affected, and corrupted by sin. That's what total depravity is. And that's what this is speaking of, that sin defiles man's total personality, that every part of being a human has been touched by sin and has been corrupted. Uh, Not that you are as wicked as you could be, but that there is nothing about you that has not been touched by sin. Yes? Yeah, that was part of my point the other week about the, uh, the reg- regulation, regulation uh, of the Holy Spirit upon people. Uh, the degrees of humans mm-hmm. um, that lurk in our heart. Uh, um, the, the Holy Spirit, if, if left by the Holy Spirit, we would see that mass sin all over. That he regulates even this unsaved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there we see, once again, evidence of common grace, that, that the Lord restrains wickedness even in the unbeliever, um, which is a gracious act. Um, so, yeah, good, good point there. All right, so moving on, we see that it's affected the whole man, but now I want us to, to look at how sin enslaves the man um, I'll read Romans 6.20, and then can I get someone to read Acts 26.18? So Romans 6.20, for, uh, for when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. So here, Paul is saying that these uh, Christians... Before they became Christians, when they were unbelievers, um, that they were servants of sin. Uh, And that Greek word servant uh, could also be translated as slave. um, That you are uh, enslaved to sin. All right, Acts 26, 18. All right, so under whose power uh, are unbelievers? Under the power of Satan. Yes, unbelievers are under the power of Satan. Uh, Jesus uh, tells uh, the Pharisees that their father is the devil. Um, And so, you know, that, that headship notion of uh, Satan being your father as an unbeliever means that you are in submission and subjection to him. Uh, other places we see that he's referred to as a master. Um, and we, we know that in the master-slave uh, or master-servant relation that there is one who is over the subordinates. Um, and so here we see just in these two passages, that unbelievers are called servants of sin and that we're told that they are under the power of Satan. Um, And so we see that. And that, if you understand that imagery of being enslaved to sin, then you see the typology of the Old Testament in a clearer way. Uh, because then uh, Israel fleeing Egypt, being freed from slavery in Egypt, is no longer simply about just being free and going to the promised land. It's a type 
that points towards the spiritual exodus that we have when we flee out of bondage of sin and death and flee unto the promised land where Jehovah promises to dwell with us. Uh, And so this notion of slavery to sin is key to understand not just in our own personal lives of how the Lord has delivered us, but also it's key to understand uh, what he has written down for us in the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's why we, we read in Scripture that Christ's death is, is spoken of as a ransom, that he gave his life as a ransom, and that, that uh, the word ransom there speaks to uh, one who buys a slave's freedom. Um, it's, that, that is what it was called when you bought someone's freedom was paying their ransom. Uh, and so we, we do see that language being used of Christ's death as, as paying the ransom, being the one who pays and buys our freedom. All right. Any other questions or comments about sin enslaving man? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just mentioned it, but yeah, what you're saying because because he's saying that Satan is in authority over them. Yeah. All right. Uh, so sin defiles the man's total personality. Sin enslaves the man, and now we're going to look at sin reigns over all men. So it's not just a select few that this depravity affects, but it is every man who has ever existed save one. Uh, And that one who was not touched by the stain of sin was Christ Jesus. So uh, 1 John 5, 19, and then Ecclesiastes 7, 20. And then Romans 3, 9 through 12. So first, first John 5, 19. All right, so the whole world lies in the power of the evil one or lieth in wickedness. Uh, so here we see that it's not particular to certain individuals, but that it is the whole world. Um, and now we have to be careful of how Scripture uses that term, the world, because there are instances where it speaks of the world not as everyone universally, but as uh, representatives throughout the world, uh, that there are people... Uh, throughout all the world uh, that it applies to. You think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, Did God love the entire world and give his son for the whole world? Or did he love people of the world of the whole world, encompassing every place in the world. Uh, I know there can be some healthy debate on that. Uh, Did God love the whole world? And because of Christ coming into the world, the whole world did benefit. Uh, So there can be some debate there. Uh, 
there's other passages that speak of Christ dying for the world. Um, so did he die for every single person on the world, on the earth, uh, that would ever live? Or did he die for such a massive amount of people that spread throughout the entirety of the world that it can be said that he died for the whole world? Um, and so we have to look because scripture does use that differently. And there are places where he speaks of, where scripture speaks of the entire world, everyone. And so it, it has to do with the context that we're looking at. Uh, and here in this context, uh, it, it clearly speaks to the entirety of the world because it is making a distinction between those who are of God, which would be the, the select, the elect, uh, the quote-unquote few of the world in contrast to the entirety of the world. So it, it's making that distinction there and so it's clear from the context that here we see the whole world lieth in wickedness is speaking of the universality of wickedness in all men. Uh, Ecclesiastes, oh, real quick. Yeah. All right. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. See, I'll read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So what kind of man does not exist? Uh, a righteous man that does good. A righteous. A righteous man, a just man. Uh, there is not one that exists on earth that does good. Save the man Jesus. Yeah. And that's what that's what makes or that's one thing that makes Christ so distinct from the rest of humanity uh, is that he is the one who does good, uh, the one who sins not. Yeah, you're about to you're about to quote it in Romans. That should be reverse that you want to. You're about to read that. No, it's just Well, you're about to quote it yeah, in Romans. Not three, nine through eleven, or nine through twelve. What then? Uh, chapter Romans, chapter three, nine. What then? Are we better than they? No, no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. 
they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So that was my question. Where did that, where did that come from? Yeah. So that would be probably the primary spot that he is quoting. You got, you know, Psalm 14, you got Psalm 53, Psalm 36, uh, and then we got some other cross references that it can, uh, that support this. But I would say Psalm 14 is probably the primary part that Paul is quoting from, but he is, he's kind of mashing together uh, three different Psalms uh, to make this point. But here we see, once again, that there's no one. There's no one who is righteous. There's no one who does good. There's no one who understands. There's no one that seeks after God. Um, and so we see, once again, this universality of sin, of corruption in the man, in the man uh, and, it, and it not simply being only of a particular group of people, but it being universal. If there is no one, then that means... There is no one. Um, and so when we're looking at sinful man, we recognize, or when we're looking at man, we recognize that all men are sinful. They're all corrupted, uh, and that sin reigns over all men uh, until that master relationship with sin has been broken and the man now has a new master, which is Christ, uh, that you become no longer a slave to sin, but you become a slave to righteousness. All right, and now uh, we're getting to what's probably the more con controversial uh, portion of this doctrine. Um, most people don't have an issue with saying that man is sinful, that man is corrupt, uh, that man is enslaved to sin, that sin has uh, affected all men. Most people don't have problems with this. But this next part is where we start seeing people have problems. Uh, and that is that sinners have neither the desire nor the ability to be saved. And this is where it gets controversial uh, with the broader Christian community. Um, so Jeremiah 13, 23, if I can get someone to read that. Um, and then John 6, 44. And then John six sixty five. So Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you may you also do good for our custom to do with evil. All right. So can can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Like these are a chameleon. <laughs> a chameleon can camouflage itself. Um, so, 
these, I, I love, I love when Scripture does this. Uh, in the army, we used to say, "Give it to me, Barney style," which meant as simple as possible. Um, and this is kind of giving it to you, Barney style. My girls, my two-year-old and my four-year-old, can tell you that you can't change your skin, and that you a leopard can't make his spots go away. And so it's something that's really simple. It's something that we all already understand. And then the prophet Jeremiah applies it to doing good if you're accustomed to evil, if you're an evil person. And we've already seen that men are wicked, that men are evil, that men are sinful. And so if man is sinful... Just as the Ethiopian cannot change his skin and just as the leopard cannot change his spots, the sinful man cannot change his heart. The one who does evil cannot do good. And it's that simple to understand. And Jeremiah lays it down Barney style for us and yet there's still people who fight against this. Um, and it's hard for me to wrap my mind around how you can read this passage and still say that man can do good on his own, that man can choose God, that man can change his heart. Um, it just blows my mind. Because that's what man wants to hear. Yeah. That's what tickles their ears. Preach that we can have seven steps to a better you, mm -hmm. and uh, they'll 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 abuse the scriptures as part of that, as they, they cherry pick verses um, to to um, talk about how we can make self improvement. Mm -hmm. And I think we can make self improvement. I think we can listen to a a, a good speaker and get motivated. And charge ahead and do, 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 do well for a while. Mm -hmm. We'll run out of steam eventually. But we can change habits. We can make improvements in our lives by sheer will. I believe that is possible. Um, but to make the type of radical change we're talking about, to move from life, from death to life, um, and, and the analogy is often given, you know, a dead person can't, make themselves alive again. Mm -hmm. um, we, 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 are, we are dead to sin. And that's, that's a hard concept for a lot of people. I get it. It's, it's based on my selfish self-interest. I know, I know why they do it. You know, because it tickles their ears. Mm -hmm. They like to hear it. That sells. Um, sells very well. Um, gospel's hard. Yeah. Yeah, self-help can cause temporal improvement, but it makes no eternal change. And I think that's important to note. You know, people can do things, people can better themselves. Like, you know, a, a man who's in prison for killing someone can be reformed by the penitentiary system to where, you know, he no longer does bad things like that. He doesn't kill people. He doesn't hurt people. And, you know, for some reason, I don't know, we're close to Chicago, so it may actually be a reality. This heinous murderer could just get out of prison and go on to live a normal, decent life. But that doesn't mean that his heart was changed. He's still as sinful and as wicked as he was the day that he killed someone. You know, unless there is a heart change, then someone will always be sinful. Uh, someone will always be wicked. They will always be enslaved to sin. 
Sin will always reign over them. Satan will always be their master. Yeah. Yeah, and society and our culture has has hijacked a lot of scriptural language, talking about the heart, talking about heart change, and and we need to correct those errors when they when they try to use the language of scripture, uh, and tell them you know, no, this is not what biblical heart change is. Biblical heart change is spiritual and it is and our our workbook doesn't get to it it's what ezekiel speaks of of taking out the heart of stone and giving the heart of flesh it's what god speaks of in uh i believe it's deuteronomy um of like you said the circumcision of the heart um and that's something that only god can do and so, you know, we need, to, we need to not let the world confuse the language of Scripture uh, by utilizing it to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. All right, uh, John six forty four. So what must first happen in order for a person to come to Christ? The Father must draw him. The Father must draw him. You know, there's nothing that the sinful man can do to approach God. God has to draw him uh, unto him. And then John six sixty five. All right, so we just saw that that no one can come unto the Father unless the Father draws him. And now we see that no one can come unto Christ unless uh, he were given unto him by the Father. Here, it's very plain to see that we can't do anything to come to God. We can't do anything to come to Christ on our own. That it takes the Spirit's regenerative working in our heart uh, to remove our heart of stone, to give us the heart of flesh, to circumcise our our hearts, uh, to put to death the old man and, and to be raised to life in the new man. It takes the spirit to do that. And then our outward coming to Christ, coming unto the Father, that profession of faith that we make is simply a response to the inward work that the spirit did in us. And so we see that there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we could desire that would bring us to Christ in our sinful flesh. Um, that you know, no one does good. There's no one who is righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. Well, if no one seeks after God then it must be God who comes and takes man and brings him unto the Lord. Because if you're not seeking, you will never find. But it is the Lord who draws you unto him and then gives you eyes to see him. 
So here we have a really basic overview of total depravity. Uh, any questions or comments about this doctrine? This doctrine is so key. Um, without this doctrine, none of the other quote-unquote five points will line up. None of them work without a doctrine of total depravity. That's a very difficult doctrine. People don't like it. And that's one of the challenges. Um, that most, that, not, that even some Christians have. Mm -hmm. To say that this is a difficult doctrine, it means that we have to recognize that we are hopeless sinners. And frankly, I don't like that. I prefer to think of myself a little bit better than that. But I'm not. And that's that's the challenge. We need to have a real we need to be realistic about who we are in the face of God. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like thinking about myself quite like that, like that. Yeah. But that's who I am. Yeah. Well, I guess the opposite view is that man is basically Mm -hmm. uh, we right. see you know, goodness all around us. We see you know, charitable events going on that man can do good uh, despite the evil that we see. Uh, you know, perhaps it's just you know, society that corrupts us or there are a few bad apples out there. Uh, children are born without sin. It's another common thought. I, I would say the, the unbeliever Yeah, and then real quick, because uh, I don't want to go too too much further, uh, real quick, to tie this in to some church history um, and, and some heresies. Uh, so first we have uh, the heresy of Pelagianism, uh, which denied uh, denies original sin. Pelagianism says that man is, is born uh, with a blank slate, a tabula rasa, um, and that you can do good or you can sin, but you're not born with original sin, uh, which, you know, b by de facto would have to say that there's no such thing as total depravity. Uh, Centuries later, spinning off of that, developed a doctrine of uh, semi-Pelagianism, uh, the heresy of semi-Pelagianism, which said that, you know, we don't deny original sin. We say that it's still a thing, but you're not, you're not totally corrupted either. You don't have this this total depravity. There's still enough prevenient grace that is given to you for you to be able to do good and to choose God, uh, to be able to to be saved. And that's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, that's the view that uh, the Armenians took in the 16th century. Um, and I would argue that's probably the view of the majority of even evangelical Christians. They may not know that it's called semi-Pelagianism. They may not use the term provenient grace. But that's the view that most uh, modern evangelicals would, would, would subscribe to is uh, that 
you know, you, you do have sin. There is original sin. You're born in sin. But you, you can still choose God, too. Um, and so that's semi-Pelagianism. It is a heresy. Uh, you'll find some church history scholars that'll say that it's not. It is a heresy. It's been condemned as heresy. Um, Pelagianism was condemned as heresy, I think, in the three or four hundreds. Um, three hundreds, I think. And then semi-Pelagianism was condemned as heresy at the, uh, at the Synod of Dort in... 1518 or 1618 sorry 1618 all right well that does it for total depravity Uh, next week we will look at begin to look at unconditional election the section on unconditional election is a bit longer so it'll probably take two weeks you're not going to hear this no. So who's teaching next week? I was, I was going to discuss that after we prayed. Cool. Okay. Richard, can you close us in prayer? still looking at